Please remain standing and pray with me. Come Holy Spirit now and touch the Word of God so that it might be enlivened and be quickened to our understanding. Lord, I pray that you would take big ideas that the Scriptures directly address and that are so pressing in this present moment. Lord, that you would take those and give us your heart for the way you purpose the world to be. Lord, grant me the preacher of the Word, the ability to speak, uh, grant me utterance, Lord, I pray. Give me clarity of speech and of thought. And I pray for each one of us gathered here this morning that you would give us open hearts and minds to be taught through the Scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a couple of preliminary statements regarding this uh, sermon. First of all, this is the beginning of a series of sermons that will be Coming up, uh, not every Sunday, next Sunday will be a, a special Sunday. We have our 10th anniversary celebration uh, next Saturday and Sunday. But for most of the summer, we're going to be talking about the topics that are going to be addressed here in this sermon in just a moment. Uh, so, and one of the things about this uh, series is this would be a series that I would bring my secular non-believing friends to, not for the purpose of, of getting them saved, although if that happens, we won't stop it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we we want to. I think this would be a, a great series to bring clarity, so that unbelievers or secular people would be able to say, "Okay, I, I think I understand where you're coming from. I may not agree with it, but I understand where you, as followers of Jesus, are coming from. It's not just uh, irrational hatred or something like that." Uh, also, let me. The second thing I need to do is uh, issue a little warning here. There's some pretty big ideas heading your way in this sermon and probably throughout this summer. But these big ideas are absolutely vital for us to talk about as followers of Jesus. So there's going to be some meat uh, given for us this morning. Hopefully it'll be delicious, you know, smoked North Carolina, uh, hickory smoked, barbecue flavored, scriptural meat. But it'll still be meat and we, we need to be willing to, to listen carefully and digest it. Also, I think that that would mean that perhaps taking notes during the course of these ser sermon series, uh, this sermon series would probably be a wise and good thing to do as well. So that said, here we go. Now, the world that you and I live in right now, your, this very moment is governed, it is shaped by, of all things, stories, narratives, stories. These are, there are competing and there are conflicting ways of telling the story of reality. If, by the way, if I were to ask you to tell me about yourself, what would happen is you would probably tell me a few things preliminarily. Preliminarily? I'm a doctor, trust me, I said that right. Um, <laughs> as a preliminary, uh, the, uh, you, you would tell me probably you, you know, something about your family, something about your work. But if we were to get into a broader discussion about explain yourself to me, you would begin to tell me a story. You have a narrative about your life. And that's what you would share to me, to, with me to explain your reality. Now, the same thing is true on a macro level. There are defining stories. There are narratives that are, are, are told about what all of reality is about. Now, there are many numerous stories in the world, but there are two that compose the most influential stories that affect us in our everyday experience here in North America. First of all, there is the secular Western story of the world 
that almost all of us in this room have been shaped by and formed by. This is the most formative story that we deal with. And we'll have to define this a little bit as we go on through the course of this morning. Also, there is what I would call the true story of the whole world. There is the true story of the whole world. It is the story of God's creation, redemption, and renewal of the entirety of existence through Jesus Christ in His great love for us. So that's the competing story. And that's really the story that should define us. But if truth be told, most of us are defined more by the secular story than by the Christian story. Now, the late theologian Robert Weber, in one of the last books that he wrote before he died, stated that the most pressing, listen, the most pressing spiritual issue of our time is who gets to narrate the world. The most pressing spiritual issue of our time is who gets to narrate, who gets to tell the story of the world. Now, here's why all of this is infinitely important. It's, this is not just a head game. This is infinitely and practically important to everyone in this room right now because the story that you believe and the story that you live into and the story that you live out of in your day-to-day -day life will directly affect the course of your eternity. The story that defines you in the present will define you for eternity. If you are claimed by God's story, the Christian narrative, the Christian story, then you are incorporated into God's story through baptism and faith in Jesus Christ. You're incorporated into God's kingdom through Jesus Christ, and that is the real never-ending story. And all other stories fall short of that. Now, let me take... Um, Take this to an even more, uh, here's a word that we've, I think we start hearing more lately. Let's take this to a more granular level. Let's take it to an even more granular level. Let me bring it down even closer to home for us. Uh, this, and, and this is really the topic of the series that we begin today. Listen, secularism and Christianity, here it is, okay? Secularism and Christianity tell two very different stories about what it means to be a human being. We, we call that anthropology. We have two very competing types of anthropology. And you're thinking, well, this, is, this has nothing to do with my day-to-day -day life. Oh, yes, it does. So this summer, we're going to be delving into what God says about what, about who a human person is. One of the great Jewish theologians of the 20th century, Rabbi Abraham Heschel, observed that the Bible is primarily, listen, the Bible is primarily not man's vision of God, but God's vision of man. The Bible is not man's theology, but God's anthropology. The Bible is not man's theology, but God's anthropology. Now, you really need to listen to this because I have become convinced of this truth and I believe I can demonstrate it in short order. As followers of Jesus, here it is, our greatest conflicts with the secular world around us are not so much about who God is, it's not about so much who we say God is, that's not where our greatest conflicts are. Eventually that becomes an issue. But who people are, that is the greatest source of conflict between us and secular society. Most of us, for most of us, the presenting issue uh, is that, co that collision point 
between what the world and what the followers of Jesus think it means to be a human being. That's where all of the rub comes in in our day-to-day -day discourse. For instance, all of these issues that I'm about to list are rooted in anthropology. Everybody say anthropology. anthropology. It's not just a store in the mall. Okay? This is about what it means to be a human person. So, in fact, okay, listen, all of, all of these issues are rooted in anthropology and what we believe it means to be human. Here are some of the presenting issues of our time. Ready? Equality and racial justice. You're eventually going to have to talk about who people are and what a human being is. Gender and gender identity. Human sexuality. The nature of human freedom and liberty. What does it mean to be free? Should we be free? The role of the state and human government. That is a question of anthropology. And what the secular world has to say about that and what the Christian story has to say about that sometimes don't overlap very much. The value of human life. Can we kill people before they are born or if they are sick or if they are old or if they are disabled? Can you or can't you? That is a question of anthropology. What you believe a person is determines your answer to that question. Are humans inherently valuable? Or are we valuable because we can do something? Is there an inherent value in human life? Or is there merely a pragmatic value of human life? Now here's something that we're going to talk about a lot today. Is there any transcendent and what does that word mean? What does the word transcendent mean? It means something beyond just the, the level, the horizontal level of reality, just beyond this universe of time and matter and energy, just something that exceeds the limits of this created reality. So is there any transcendent purpose in being a human person? Does human life have transcendent meaning, or, or are we just animated bags of meat? Ooh. Does my body mean something? Does my body mean something? Does this body have a meaning? Does it say something about my identity? Or do I create my identity and then make my body conform to it? All of those questions are right out front burner questions in our culture right now. The reason we have to talk about this, I would posit, is that most of us in this room are more defined by the non-Christian secular story of humanity than we are by the biblical story. Or to say it in another way is that maybe for most of us, 80% of our beliefs about what it means to be human are shaped by the world and 20% are shaped by the Bible. Because we are indoctrinated every day from the, our youngest, from the time you put that pad in a kid's hand with that little app or that little video till the time you go to postgraduate program, you're being indoctrinated in a secular understanding of human society. So the secular understanding of humanity is the dominant view in the academy. Are you ready? It's the dominant view in the academy. So, and I'm talking all the way from preschool to postgrad stuff. This is the dominant view that is taught in every venue of education with the exception of some, not all, Christian education. It is the dominant view of the media, all of the media sources. And, it, and to the greatest extent, it is the dominant view of, among those who set public policy for, you, for us. 
these are the major influences of our culture and we are all subjected to their assumptions daily from elementary school classrooms to the entertainment media and to the talking heads on TV. This view, this secular view, is necessarily an atheistic, materialistic. What does that mean, materialistic? Does it mean they just like bling? No. It means that the material world is essentially all that there is. There is no transcendent, supernatural, spiritual reality about being a human being or anything else in creation. We just deal with, a, with a, the, the material phenomenon of this world and that's it. So in this view, humanity is just the happy accident of blind, purposeless forces that can be reduced to the elements of matter, energy, time, and chance. Ben, when are you going to talk about the Bible? I'm, I'm getting there. Before you can eat, you have to put down the placemat. You put out knives and forks. Maybe a napkin if you're highfalutin. Plate. Let's get the table set. So this view sees humanity as just a happy accident of time, matter, matter chance, and energy. As Richard Dawkins described some years ago in the pages of Scientific America, this is the view. Are you ready? The, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason to it nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, listen to this, okay, if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. No design, purpose, evil, good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Okay. Here comes the Bible. Here's a critical problem for this worldview, and this is why we read Ecclesiastes chapter 2 this morning. In fact, some people might need to go to this, like, you know, counseling after hearing that. Everything's meaningless. The secular worldview, a worldview in which there is no transcendent purpose, nothing beyond this universe, here it is, means that your life and mine are ultimately meaningless and no human person possesses intrinsic value. There is no meaning to your life is meaningless. There's no purpose. There's no ultimate value. There's nothing that, uh, there, there is nothing about your life other, other than what is under the sun and that means humanity itself has no transcendent worth. You're you are, in fact, just an animated bag of protoplasm. And, this is the, and if this is the case, you can have what Peter Singer, who was perhaps the most influential ethicist of the last 40 years, you can have his view. This is what he says. He says, taking that view to its logical conclusion, I told you you were going to have to think. He says, I can think of no moral objection, listen, I can think of no moral objection to eating human roadkills except for ones like would the relative, what would the relatives think about it? I'm not kidding, he thinks this. 
And would the person themselves have wanted it to happen? There are at least two answers to this kind of thinking. And there are two, there are two problems at least here. First of all, this view does not give us any ultimate reason not to commit atrocities. If this is what you think, if you think there is no ultimate purpose, if there's no good, no evil, no justice, if you think that's, if that's what you think, there is no compelling reason. What do I mean by a compelling reason? A compelling reason is, the, is a reason that answers the question that every one of us asked in this situation. Says who? Says who? So, uh, and Peter Singer says, um, I can't think of any reason why we couldn't eat human roadkills. And because there's no says who that says you can't. You, he, has no, he doesn't have a worldview that incorporates God with it. So there is no says who that tells me in this worldview why I cannot commit atrocities, why I cannot kill you, enslave your family, and take your stuff. You might not prefer that, but you can't give me an ultimate says, says who. And at some point, people begin to realize that and begin to act it out. At some point, people will realize that right now, our secular society in North America and in Europe are coasting along on the fumes of the Christian story. But one day, those fumes are going to sputter out. And at some point, somebody's going to say, says who? I think I will take your stuff, oppress you, enslave your family, do anything I want to. Why can't, why can't I? There's no God that says I can't. Was it Dostoevsky said, if, uh, if there is no God, everything is acceptable, basically. It's a paraphrase. The second reason, the second reason for why this doesn't work is this, and it's actually found in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. And in that little verse it says, it has this phrase, for you, God, you have set eternity in the hearts of man. In other words, there is something within us that is not satisfied with the answer that there is no ultimate purpose or meaning to this life. We don't like that sense. We don't want to live in a world that has no ultimate meaning and purpose. And so it says in Ecclesiastes, this, this very depressing book that tells the truth uh, about if you want to adopt that, that worldview, that you, though, God, have set eternity, a craving for the transcendent in my heart. And so we cannot live without finding some meaning or some purpose. Human beings just can't exist that way. And that is why, that is why... Uh, it goes back really to that old Peggy Lee song from the 1960s. Yes, before most of you were born. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friend, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. In other words, distract yourself through entertainment, through drugs, whatever you have to do, from keeping to, from think, to keep from thinking about the corrosive nihilism, the soul-killing meaninglessness of life. And the really cool thing is that the Bible basically had that figured out thousands of years ago, and we just read it in Ecclesiastes. The writer of Ecclesiastes, who identifies himself as the preacher, says exactly the same thing, that if there is no meaning beyond just the moment that you and I are alive, certain things come as a consequence of that. So the preacher goes on a search. He goes on a search for meaning in a very secular way. He looks for ultimate purpose, ultimate fulfillment for life 
under the sun. In other words, in a world that only has a horizontal dimension. So he looks for ultimate meaning and pleasure. That sounds very modern, doesn't it? But in the end, it just leads to a sense of emptiness. He writes, I said to my, in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold to folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Why is that meaningless? He'll tell us in just a moment. And then he turns it to career and to work to find meaning in life. And many of us pursue those, those as our, 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 a means of finding purpose. So I, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Here it is. This is the reward for my shaping of my life around career and work. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Why was that meaningless? He's going to tell us. So he turns again to what we might equate with academic accomplishment. If I can just pile up letters after my name, maybe I'm going to find meaning. And again, though, he finds that ultimately empty, and he tells us why. And here comes the answer. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also with all my degrees. When, why then have I been so very wise? Why did I spend 20 years after graduating from high school pursuing a degree or more? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. Listen, for, the wise, for of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. Nobody's going to remember you. How the wise dies. Listen, here it is. How the wise dies, just like the fool. You know what the difference between a dead academic and a dead fool is? Nothing. Nothing. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Here's why the secular story of what it means to be human is ultimately untenable and unfulfilling. Because if this world is all there is, then your death obliterates purpose. You, if extinction is all you have to look forward to, then there is no purpose. So professor of American studies at Columbia University, Andrew Del Blanco, sounds just like Ecclesiastes, when he says this, all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. Praise the Lord. Tim Keller kind of follows up. He says, he writes, uh, Harvard professor James Wood 
and a New Yorker article, Is That All There Is?, tells of a friend, an analytic philosopher, and a convinced atheist who sometimes wakes in the middle of the night haunted by a visceral angst. He writes, How can it be that this world is the result of an accidental Big Bang? How could there be no design, no metaphysical purpose? Can it be that every life beginning with my own, my husband's, my child's, and spreading outward is cosmically irrelevant? This is an atheistic analytic philosopher waking up in the middle of the night asking that question. That's what analytic philosophers do. <laughs> Wood, who is a secular man himself, admits that as one gets older and parents and peers begin to die and the obituaries in the newspaper are no longer missives from a faraway place but local letters and one's own projects seem ever more pointless and ephemeral, such moments of terror and incomprehension seem more frequent and more piercing and I find as likely to arise in the middle of the day as the night. Please hear me, Christian brothers or sisters. Please hear me, unbelieving secular person. We can't live without purpose. And if death is the end, ultimately there is no purpose beyond this life at all. But the, but, but the story of reality told in the Bible and revealed fully in Jesus Christ is good news for those who are seeking purpose and meaning and fulfillment that we are not annihilated by death. The good news of Jesus Christ is the only thing that gives life resilience. I can deal with a lot, folks. I can sit through a lot. I can endure a lot of pain if I know there is a purpose to it and that there is a better outcome in the end, which is the only reason I go to the dentist. You can't feel that. What do you mean tell me I can't feel that? I can feel that. I'm here in this chair. I'm telling you. I feel no, you can't feel that. Stop it. It's the story of my dental experiences. <laughs> the good news of Jesus Christ is the only thing that gives life resilience and meaning that the grave cannot overturn. The good news of Jesus, the gospel, is the only thing that gives life resilience and meaning that the grave cannot overturn. In the Christian story, humans do have intrinsic worth and dignity because we are created in the image of God and because God himself thought being a human was such a great thing that he took on flesh and Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ and he became one of us. He elevates our humanity to transcendent levels, something beyond under the sun. And this is the only story that gives being a real flesh and blood, human being, transcendent value, and the only story that stands up to the storms of life. And that's why our Lord Jesus Christ says, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now here's the alternative though. If you reject this, Jesus says, and everyone who hears these words of mine 
and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. If at some point you are totally committed to a secularist worldview, and gross injustice comes your way, then there, and there's nothing you can do about it, then that's your life just, okay, I get, always get a remark afterwards when I say things like this. I get called out, so I'll, I'll just get ready. If that's... If that's all you, if, if you are that person and the floods of injustice or an untimely death or the loss of a loved one before their time or even just regular death in its course comes your way, your house is going to fall and in, at some point you're going to just realize like Solomon, uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, I hated my life. In other words, life sucks and then you die. Your house was built on sand. But if it is built on the rock, if it's built on the good news, that's what makes Christian doctors risk their lives to run to the outbreak of Ebola to treat the victims while everyone else cannot get away fast enough. It's what, it's what causes Christians to sacrifice material wealth and comfort to relieve the suffering of the poor. It's what produces a Mother Teresa or a Saint Francis or a Martin Luther King Jr. Secularism has no saints. I am convinced of that. Secularism has no saints. Because Jesus Christ reveals to us that there is a fullness and beauty and wonder and love that cannot die, that are real, and they are, they are right here this morning waiting for us in his outstretched, nail-pierced hands. He shows us that there is an infinite, sacred order beyond this world that we can see and touch and that he wants us to participate in right now. And at this table, that, that transcendent, over the sun, sacred order of all reality, purpose and meaning, and, and this place and this time overlaps just for a moment with our day-to-day -day life. And we, were we are infused once again with the reality that death does not have the final word and that Jesus is alive and that gives my life meaning and purpose. So brothers and sisters, prepare for this summer. Prepare to have your heart and your mind stretched. Bring your secular friends and unbelieving friends and let's talk about what it means to be a real human formed in the image of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.